novel. What you're hearing is the start of the end of one of the most important shows to ever air on network TV for Black America. It's May 27th, 1994, and a small army of MCs are at the Arsenio Hall show to perform with legendary producer Pete Rock. That's MC Light. She's on stage with Tretch and Vinrock of Naughty by Nature, Fife Dog and Q-Tip of A Tribe Called Quest, Guru of Gangstar, and more, as they deliver tributes to their beloved host. The Arsenio Hall Show changed the game of late-night talk shows. It broke new ground with a fresh style that put the spotlight on black culture in America. Hall frequently had major black entertainers on the show, and although it was a hit with a young, diverse audience, in 1994 it was canceled. This was going to be a huge loss for hip-hop. Arsenio Hall was the first black late-night TV host, and he put on for the culture by booking the greats of the golden age of hip-hop to perform. And now these MCs wanted to take him out in style. With Pete Rock on the ones and twos, they would take turns rapping over the same beat, this is what we call a cipher. And you know who else was in the building? The legendary Wu-Tang Clan. Jizza, Ghostface Killer, You God, Method Man, and the Old Dirty Bastard were on stage, representing for their man. But ODB wasn't rapping. He carries a bottle in hand, wearing a white t-shirt with the number seven inscribed over a star. He mugs for the cameras before going off to the side to bear hug Arsenio Hall. As KRS-One is finishing the final verse of the cypher, the stage is packed as they crowd Hall for the final sign-off. But then, from deep in the crowd, someone yells something wild on the mic. It's ODB. You gotta understand, the Arsenio Hall show was one of the coolest places to be in the 90s. Movie stars, ball players, activists, they were all coming through. And if you had something to tell America, you could say it on Arsenio Hall's couch. If you were watching that night, you might have thought Dirty was losing it. But what ODB was yelling was key to everything about him. It was his message. The black man is God. And it was his duty to spread it to those that would listen. We've heard some of the ways ODB was viewed by the outside world and media. But now I want to tell you how he came to see himself as the ruler of his own destiny and the world around him. From a young kid with a knack for getting into trouble into a full-fledged artist brimming with purpose. USG Audio, Novel, and Talk House. This is ODB, a son unique. 
Episode 2, Putnam Avenue. To understand who ODB was before Wu-Tang Clan and all the crazy stories that would follow, I traveled to Worcester, Massachusetts with my producer, Taylor. Peace, God. Peace, God. It's been a long time. Yo, you know how long it's been? Over a decade, G. I came to visit a friend from back in the day. A man who knew ODB better than just about anyone. Well, in the nations of the gods and earth, I come in the divine name of Shadi, God Allah, and professionally known as Buddha Monk from the Wu-Tang Clan Brooklyn Zoo, ODB's right-hand man. I'm from Brooklyn, New York, fresh off a nigga's ass. See, me and Dirty, we like doing interviews and keeping it dirty and stinking. Buddha Monk is like an encyclopedia, the wise master that lives at the mountaintop. He's a Brooklyn OG. I was a Crown Heights baby. First of all, Christopher Wallace and all of them was down by the Washington Avenue side and Fulton Street side. And Dirty and all of them was like the Franklin side. In 1985, when he was 16 years old, Buddha's family moved over to Bed-Stuy, where he met a tight-knit family who threw parties and played music on the nearby corner of Franklin and Putnam Avenue. They were the Joneses, ODB's family. Back then, ODB was known as Russell Jones. Mommy and them, they were the most giving cookout people in the world with all the juicy music on. Forever Mars, must be a special lady, treat her like a lady and everything. Uncle Freddie started doing the dances and everybody. It wasn't like, oh, you come up and he come up, y'all not considered. You walked up with me, you considered family. I know that family. I used to take rides to Putnam and Franklin with Papa Wu. Papa Wu was an older cousin to ODB and a regular presence at the Joneses' house. The house is always filled with people. This is Russell's older brother, Ramsey Jones. Ramsey's brothers and sisters would take turns entertaining their large family that would be gathered at the house. We would play a lot of the disco records or R&B records, so my brother Russell and my sister would sing Fire and Desire by Rick James and Tina Marie, and the whole clan, like, my Uncle Freddie and all of them would stand around and watch them sing, and they were all, like, feeding off each other. His mother, his aunts. Yo, his aunts are all singers and dancers. The whole family is gifted. The whole family. I remember visiting the Jones home with Papa Wu. Mama Cherry would be there, along with Uncle Freddie. I always felt elevated there. Papa Wu used to tell me mad stories. What's one of your best memories, man, of being over there? I put me to Franklin. You know, Sundays, we all be in the house and they all singing church songs with us, and Dirty used to come run out of the room with, <laughs> with a towel on like he was James Brown. <laughs> oh, Dirty was, oh, that nigga was real, boy. Brooklyn, during that time, was a special place to grow up but it wasn't so easy for the average black family. In another highly publicized case, two young white men were indicted on murder charges today in Brooklyn just one hour before funeral services for the black teenager they allegedly attacked. 
There were high-profile crimes like the murder of Yusuf Hawkins, a black teenager, by a mob of white young men in 1989. As many as 30 whites had reportedly confronted the victim and three of his friends. Bed-Stuy, do or die, was the mantra of survival for one of Brooklyn's main hubs. There was also drugs, poverty, and other trapdoors lurking out in the open. But the Jones household was its own sanctuary. As Buddha puts it, the Jones family was a grounding force who helped keep them on the straight and narrow. They was like the Jeffersons, you know, moving on up, you know, but at the same time, keeping my feet flat, firm to the ground, and helping others. At home, Ramsey remembers his younger brother, Russell, standing out from the beginning. My brother and I were the quietest one in the family. We always kept to ourselves. But Russell was more like the outgoing joker. He was always, like I said, mischievous. He would go out and boost clothes at Macy's. This was in the 80s. Hip-hop was coming up. I would rock Lee's with stripes on and Pumas. And my brother would come home wearing Coca-Cola shirts and polo. I'm like, damn, his gear looks better than mine. And I'm like, dude, where you getting your gear from? He's like, don't worry about it. Macy's or ANS would call our house. Hello, uh, this is Lost Prevention. Is your uh, Mr. Jones there? And I go, uh, Dad, it's about Russell. <laughs> I said, well, yeah, we have your son down here. And then my father said, keep him and hung up the phone. <laughs> because it got to be a habit. But my brother had the dopest wardrobe, that's all I can say. <laughs> I remember Papa Wu telling me stories about young Russell, willing to risk it all for a girl. That boy was crazy, man. I remember a girl back in the day, Dirty was young, told me she don't give him a kiss if he jump off the roof. That's why Dirty Feet is all fucked up, because his nigga jumped off the roof for a kiss, and he got pins in both his feet. That's how crazy that boy is. As teens on the streets of Brooklyn, Buddha and Russell were finding their way. Sometimes Russell veered too far off course, almost putting himself in real danger. We were living in the plaza at the time, and my brother knew my father had a gun. So my brother comes from the back of the uh, apartment and comes out, getting ready to go out. And my inner sense told me that he was up to something. And I stopped him and said, Russell, where are you going? He said, I'm going outside. And I just patted him down, and he had my father's gun. I said, dude, what are you, crazy? I pulled the gun out. He said, no, give me that. I said, don't take that gun out. Don't go out. I threw him out the house because I was so pissed off at him. I said, why would you go out here with dad's gun? Russell wasn't a violent person, but his actions were sometimes a risk to his own potential. Fortunately, there was something new taking hold of young people's attention. A force of positivity sweeping through every borough of New York City an exciting new era in black music, hip-hop. We were kids, man. We would eat hot dogs, chicken franks, turkey franks, and vegetarian beans and stuff like that, and watch these rap shows and stuff like that, you know? Beck, I'm BJ Ralph McDaniels, and as always, I bring you the new music first. We would definitely be watching a lot of Ralph McDaniels. Video Music Box was a TV show that was created in 1983. It aired rap videos and on-the-street interviews with up-and-coming talent. It was the first of its kind to document the emerging hip-hop scene as it swept across New York City. 
from the Bronx to Brooklyn and everywhere in between. Soul Train was on at the time, but Soul Train was more like a R&B, West Coast, different vibe than what was in my head. New York was a different party scene, and I wanted to show that. This is Ralph McDaniels. In the 80s, he was a young broadcast engineer working at PBS. Frustrated by the lack of representation of people like himself on TV, he saw a void he could fill in TV programming for youth in the city. Everybody used to go home and just sit in front of the TV and watch music videos. Whatever it was that you were into, you watched your favorite show and you just knew about all your favorite videos. Like other black kids growing up in New York, Buddha and Russell saw themselves in the raw, untapped energy that was being broadcast on Video Music Box. Ralph McDaniels was the Batman of Video Music Box and Crazy Sam was his co-host. And Dirty is the Batman and I'm the Robin to him. I'm his co-host. Back at Dirty's home, Ramsey was experimenting, sampling the family's record collection. My father bought a mixer for me for Christmas, and somehow they got a hold of two Technics turntables. I don't know if they quite stole it. <laughs> but we had a whole DJ system in our bedroom. He made beats with his cousin, Rakim, and then Rakim would rhyme over them. Later on, we acquired a beatbox, like a beat machine. And I told my cousin, yo, we should make our own hip-hop tapes. Russell would watch and study Rakim, an artist also destined for greatness, who would eventually lead the Wu-Tang Clan as the RZA. He was starting to rhyme at that time. And my brother wasn't rhyming yet, but he was listening to what RZA was doing. His early days making music in the Jones house was the start of an important musical lineage. We were listening to a lot of the hip hop that was coming up at the time, all the breakbeats and stuff like that. And we all went to the bedroom to create music. One day we were all in the room and my aunt knocked on the door, Aunt Kat, and I opened the door. She says, is that a record y'all playing? I said, no, we, this is us. She's like, oh my God, you guys need to record that, like put out a record. And that right there gave us the germ of an idea of doing that. Russell watched Rakim grow as an MC, but he got better at his own pace. He heard what was going on around him, and when he opened his mouth, no one was ready for what came out. He would be like, yo, you see my pinky? You see my thumb? You see my fish? You better get the fuck out. I'm like, wait a minute, nigga. Hold up. Wait a minute. Dirty, dirty. What do you mean? That's What, what, what are you going to do with that? Like, we used to make fun of him because he used to always start his rhymes off like that. And one day, he came up with some music. And he started making sense. And when we all kept practicing and trying to do our little scenarios, we know he was going to start off with that. So, see my pinky, you see him dumb. You know, and then we add on with him because now we know that's his thing. I didn't know that it was going to help generate a craft for him to get with Riz and all of them. It was always in his blood. As Buddha remembers it, ODB's confidence and force of personality wasn't limited to music. By the time he was 19, he spit game with the same gusto he brought to his rhyming. The first time I ever got to see him really talk to a girl, I was like, you know that what you just said to her didn't work, right? She's not coming back. And I guarantee you, bro, that 
that's a fake-ass number she gave you. And in true indeed, it was a fake-ass number. He was like, why you shitting on what I'm doing? Like, dirty, I ain't shitting on what you're doing. I'm telling you, that's a fake-ass number. They had that real kind of friendship, the kind of bond where you tell somebody the truth, even if it stings. It kind of, like, made our friendship real because we would always tell each other the truth. Like, nah, man, what you got on the day? Oh, that ain't it. You know, you need to go back in and change because you're going to run all the girls away, God. We going girl hunting. We going doing this. We were young. You understand what I'm saying? I'm like, we're not going to remember these girls when we get older. He said, they're going to remember us because we're going to be somebody. He always used to say that. L, no matter what we do, we're going to be somebody. As Rakim and Russell honed their skills, they would form a group with another cousin, Gary, who rapped as the genius. They called themselves All In Together Now. The All In Together Now crew, like, they were going to clubs everywhere just smashing MCs. Dirty and then wanted to prove that they was just as nice as anybody that was already on. And so they kind of, like, bombarded shit. There wasn't no real plan. The lack of a plan was the plan. RZA and Jizzle were shunning the usual label approach. They wanted their stage presence to sound raw and unfiltered. All together now. Stupid motherfucker. That's Russell performing on stage with Rakim at a show put on by Ralph McDaniels. It's 91 and he's making the same declaration on that stage that the future ODB would make on the Arsenio Hall finale years later. The black man is God. It might sound crazy, but it's intentional. It's rooted in the beliefs of the 5% nation, a conscious movement influenced by the nation of Islam that grew out of the black freedom struggle in Harlem in the 60s. For a lot of black folks, other thought systems had failed to provide us with a level of self-esteem, dignity, and self-empowerment. The 5% nation came in and established itself as a pillar in black culture. Understanding the 5% nation can be complicated, but stick with me, because the core ideas were what drove ODB's life force and purpose. You can even argue that the 5% nation is actually the basis of hip-hop itself. I think the best way to explain it to you was to tell you how I came to understand myself as God. A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis from KQED Podcasts comes on our watch season two. New Folsom, a story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. I grew up out in Long Island with my parents and four brothers. As a young black child, I was always searching for the truth and always had difficulty finding it as I felt it was being kept from me. As a black person, one of the first things you're told in school is that you were a slave. You're never taught about legacies of black history prior to coming to this country. 
After getting left back in the eighth grade when I was 14, I was sparked to the knowledge of myself by an older brother in the neighborhood named Taiwan. He was a five percenter. He told me about our place in the world as black people. We weren't lowly, but noble and special, with a glorious past. It was empowering and nothing like the history lessons that we were being taught in school. Taiwan's words came in a time when I needed them. I had just failed eighth grade and had to repeat it. I remember sitting in the back seat of my older brother's Honda Accord, thinking about how I didn't want to be a failure. I was trying to understand who I was and where I fit in. And the teachings that Taiwan began sharing really resonated with me. These are our foundation. We are here to save the children of the world. The parents in the very near future, when they see themselves not fit to educate and qualify their children, will come and recommend them to be a 5%er. The term 5% refers to the 5% of the population who are truly awake. 5%ers teach that 85% of the population are dumb, deaf, and blind people who do not know who they are and who lack knowledge itself. The 10% keep the 85% blind, deaf, and dumb. They are the rich, slave makers of the poor. The 5% who are left are the righteous people who know who the true and living God is and their origin in this world. The 5% nation teach that black people are the original people of the planet Earth, and their teachings include a curriculum made up of 120 lessons. The fundamental teachings of the 5% nation are the supreme mathematics and the supreme alphabet. These are the prereqs before going into the actual lessons. With the knowledge of each man upon this planet Earth, that he is God, and the original black man is God, the founder of all men upon the planet Earth. We, the 5% here, represent ourselves as God through our true knowledge as God. These concepts might be hard to accept, but the knowledge is available to those who want to go deeper. It's not for everybody, but that's okay. After Taiwan initially sparked me to these teachings, I became immersed in them, believing it was the only way for me to succeed. Russell Jones and I grew up at different times. I'm an 80s baby, and he was born in 68. But we both grew up in America, a place where it's rare to see black people with real power. That's why this message, the black man is God, hit me so hard. Being gods is the opposite of everything I was taught about black people in America. It rocked a lot of us to the core, especially Russell and his cousins. Dr. Anthony Penn is a professor of religion at Rice University. As he sees it, dirty found purpose within the 5% nation. He's living in a context of misery, right? His parents are trying to do their best they can, but it's not getting them out of these circumstances, right? He is surrounded by misery, suffering, and lack but he always wanted more. He had a sense of who he was. And I think what the five percenters gave him was a justification for his desire to be bigger than life, for thinking he deserved more. It offered a very devastating critique of the world in which he lived, and it offered solutions. This is Michael Muhammad Knight, a Sunni Muslim and a biographer of the five percent nation. It was cool, it was everywhere, it offered a critique of what was wrong with the world, and it offered a way to fix it. The way to fix it was, you know, 
be God. Think about it. Young black and brown men, highly despised and suspect, living in a social world in which they are demonized, are now told they are supreme. They are gods. They control the universe. That's powerful. Buddha Monk remembers the day that he discovered that Russell had found the knowledge too. It was funny because when he told me he had knowledge itself, I told him I had knowledge itself. When we get the knowledge itself, we often change our names. And at that time, Russell changed his name too, to Asan Unique. So I was like, so what you come in the name of? He said, I come in the divine name of Unique Asan. I was like, oh, okay. I was kind of shocked because I didn't see that at the time. When I heard him say God, I'm like, you righteous? And he's like, yeah, true indeed. And then I was like, well, my name is Shadi Gala. He's like, oh, word? It's like, I ain't know that. As five percenters, we have an obligation to keep each other sharp. As we say, still sharp and still, and each one teach one. So when Buddha revealed to Asan that he also had knowledge of self, they had to test each other. And he asked me today's mathematics right there on the spot. When we talk about mathematics, we're dealing with the underlying truth and balance of the universe. Dealing with the day's mathematics is a grounding thing. I hit him, and he was like, hmm, that's peace. It gets quiet for a minute because now you done tested me at the highest level you could test me at, and I was prepared. So now you know I'm that same soldier you are on the same level, same eye, detecting the same mind and ready to embark on whatever we need to embark on because I'm sharp with my sword. Buddha saw how becoming a god, becoming Asan unique, transformed his friend. Asan was a wild child who came up in an unforgiven city, but the knowledge itself had set him free. For him to have knowledge itself, he said when he got it, it helped him to realize not to be a a mischief child in the streets doing shit that could have got him killed. It changed his life. Knowledge of self is the first step to understanding who you are as a god and as a five percenter. It informs everything we do, but it also gives us responsibility to share our wisdom with the world. You not only talked it, you had to walk it. Ralph McDaniel saw how this message entered the music. Because there were other people that were watching you and would tell you, brother, what are you doing? You said you were five percenter. You are supposed to be walking in this way. And so there was accountability. And so when music was made, you also had to incorporate that into your music. If you were a recording engineer, or if you were a rapper, or if you were a DJ, if you were a dancer, you took all of that and you put all of that into this thing called hip hop. I would say it's only a slight exaggeration to say that the five percenters invented hip hop. You're God, what are you gonna do with it? What are you gonna do with being God? And what are you gonna do with your tradition and how are you gonna understand your tradition? At that final taping of the Arsenio Hall show, that tradition was everywhere you looked. You had rappers performing in the cipher, which comes from the 5% concept of gathering in the circle to discuss the science of the day. The shirt Dirty was wearing had the symbol of the universal flag on it. That's the 5% emblem. And then there was unique Asan Allah himself, standing in his power, confident with his knowledge of self, ready to take on the world. And Asan was a god surrounded by gods. Rakim became ruler Zigzag Zigala, 
a.k.a. the RZA, and the genius's righteous name will become a law of justice with the stage name, the Jizza. His brother Ramsey explains that their cousins had knowledge of self, too. He really studied a lot of the mathematics with Papa Wu, and Rizza and Jizza also exposed to it from my cousin. It just brought them together and helped them to understand the history of the black man and themselves. Becoming 5% has provided a spiritual base that fueled Asan and his cousins. This was much more than just about music. It was a movement. RZA and Jizza tried being solo artists, but found themselves compromising just to please record execs and the rulers of radio. The journalist and writer Skiz Fernando followed the Wu-Tang's rise as a group. They both had such horrible experiences in the mainstream music industry. That was the impetus for forming Wu-Tang. They were like, we tried to do this solo ourselves, but it didn't really work. So Rizzo was like, now I'm going to come back with my whole team. Rizzo, Jizza, and Asom would go to the source of their collective power. They really tapped into the power that they contained as gods. And soon, that would transform into a force even more powerful. Look, I know there might be a lot of names floating around. Russell Jones, Aeson Unique. But the one that everyone knows best came from a Kung Fu movie. This one time they had a flick and we saw Dirty Ho. Here's Buddha Monk. You know, the, the dirty and the whole part got him intrigued, like, what the hell? Hey, master, why worry? We got ourselves well equipped. Hochi, don't underestimate them. There are a lot of good fighters in court. Besides, you haven't mastered Kung Fu. Remember that. When he went in and he seen the character of Dirty Ho, it kind of made him feel like, yo, in a lot of ways, I relate to me being that character. Because his way of life that the artist portrayed within the movie was kind of like Dirty's life he was living. It was like being one and the same. When he told me, yo, my name is Old Dirty Bastard now. At first I laughed, I saw this guy here, man, like, <laughs> yo, not only you gonna have the music, now you wanna be a bastard doing it. Yo, when I heard the shit, I was like, yo, this guy here, man, this fucking guy here, like, I can't keep up with him, man, I just can't, <laughs> like, like, I'm done. Russell Jones had become Aeson Unique. And Aeson Unique was now Old Dirty Bastard, or ODB, Dirty for short. Aeson was the name of a dignified black man who was telling the world of his power and special talent. Old Dirty Bastard, on the other hand, was about reflecting the harsh reality of modern America. The name ODB became synonymous with originality, with wild antics, and with having no father to his style. The change represented something big, it was a change of essence, and it would have big consequences for Aeson. It might seem strange to become an old dirty bastard after learning that you're God, but being God empowers you with ultimate freedom. You cannot tell a God what to do in the same way that you can tell a Christian what to do. Here's Dr. Anthony Penn. Old Dirty Bastard is not concerned with what other folks think about his behavior. Fuck that. For him, the question is, 
Is he living consistently? While Dirty embraced his new way of life, Buddha Monk was in and out of the neighborhood, charting his own path as a musician. After a period of time away, Buddha came back to find an eager ODB looking for him. He came out one day, he heard somebody playing some music. He was like, yo, who, yo, who playing all that good shit? And he knocked on my door. He came upstairs. Dirty was like, the group I'm with now is Wu-Tang. It's me and my cousins and a couple other people and stuff, but I want you to hear it and tell me what you think. Wu-Tang Clan was born out of RZA, Jizza, and Asan's fusion of 5% teachings, a street perspective, and a love for the aesthetics and principles of Asian philosophies. The whole Wu-Tang concept was very unique at the time because you didn't have a lot of groups who were conceptual. Wu-Tang was basically representing what they grew up with, their whole lifestyle, their whole childhood. With the new name, ODB joined his cousins to grow their ranks with the collection of formidable MCs. The rest of the ensemble included Raekwon the Chef, Ghostface Killer, Method Man, Master Killer, U-God, Inspector Deck, and Capadonna. They would assemble in Staten Island, Shaolin. When hip-hop first started, you did have these big crews like Cold Crush Brothers who had like multiple MCs. That's like the original form of hip-hop. Obviously, you had individual MCs, but you also had big groups like that. So to me, Wu-Tang was kind of taking it back to the early days of hip-hop, like eight or nine-man crews where every dude rhymed and every dude was like incredible. Raekwon remembers RZA introducing Dirty to the other guys. You could tell his cousin had a lot of character. You know, his personality, the way he wear clothes. Dirty was a dude that always loved to wear, you know, fly shit back then. <laughs> and he was just funny. And we all loved him, you know what I mean? Because of his personality. Dirty was always an energized person. If he felt like things were too calm around him, he'd make jokes, he'd beatbox, he'd get on his musical shit. This was attractive to me back then, knowing him like, yo, this guy... He has a lot of energy, and he's fun to be with. With all their hunger and creative energy focused on one goal, Wu-Tang took what started with All In Together Now and grew it into a full-blown movement as the Wu-Tang Clan. With RZA making the beats, the group of MCs created a sound that blended non-styles together and influences that hip-hop had never synthesized. Soon they had a record. Buddha took copies of the record and played it at parties he DJed to introduce crowds to the Wu-Tang Clan. I wasn't just doing Brooklyn. I was DJing all over Jersey, Queens, Long Island, Washington, D.C. I was DJing all of Manhattan, like the Kilimanjaro's and all of that stuff. You know what I'm saying? Uptown, the fevers and all that. So I would play they joint, and people would ask me the question about it, and I'm like, it's getting ready to come out, da-da-da-da-da. Y'all need to go cop that. It's to protect your neck. The Wu took over New York with shows that caused pandemonium. The crowds of fans who showed up had never experienced the force so powerful. The gods were creating an energy for the fans that was contagious. The one 
thing that was always consistent with the Wu-Tang show in the early days was the chaos. I mean, you didn't know who was in the group when they were on stage because they had about 50 people on stage with them. You know, they basically brought their whole projects out to every show because they had all these people on stage and they just looked wild too. Skiz Fernando was one of the witnesses to the mayhem of a Wu show. It was pure and from the streets. The dress code was just basically like hoodies and baggy jeans and Timberland boots. Today, hip hop is like a fashion show, you know, but back then, dudes wore what they could afford. So it was like rugged streetwear, you know, Carhartt. And the whole visual aesthetic of Wu-Tang was just like scary. Let's put it like that, okay? Soon enough, Protect Your Neck was blaring out from boomboxes, parties, and street corners everywhere. But this is also the music video era, and songs that were making waves are airing on MTV. Protect Your Neck was huge, but the crew needed to drop a video to put it over the top. RZA came to me with Protect Your Neck, a music video that he shot on his own. And I said to him, okay, what is this? This is Ralph McDaniels from Video Music Box. The video had time code on it and blank spots. It wasn't really done. And he said, yeah, this is my new group, Wu-Tang Clan. I said, Wu-Tang Clan? What's that? And he was like, yeah, <laughs> you know, this usual laugh. He started laughing. This is different, right? So I said, yeah, it definitely is different. I said, all right, when you finish the video, I'll play it. He said, can you play it with the time code on? And I said, I guess I could. I mean, it doesn't look like it's done. You sure you want me to play it like that? He was like, yeah, it's no problem. Just play it. And I just played it. And they don't have a record deal at all. The video for Protect Your Neck showed the harsh realities of life for inner city youth, the exact demographic Wu-Tang was speaking to and speaking for. It was an unfiltered look at Wu-Tang Clan's worldview. It seemed like there were hundreds of people in the video, and we knew that they weren't playing when they said that they're coming as a clan. The black and white texture was gritty and unpolished just like their unvarnished sound. In the middle of the track, ODB leads into his verse with the soulful ad-lib. And then he rips into a confident flow. His eyes are trained on the camera. He has this kind of half-singing, half-rapping, when we talk about differences in approach and flow and style, he was kind of an outlier of outliers. Hanif Abdurraqib is an author and music critic. He grew up in Cleveland and remembers when Wu-Tang came on the scene. It was ODB's distinct presence within the mix that got him hooked. I treated him more as kind of like a broad capital V vocalist, like the same way I would treat a soul singer with a unique voice. He has this kind of innovative talent that felt both urgent and kind of always on shaky ground. You never really knew what was coming or what could happen. It kind of felt like he was building plane as he was flying it. Even though he was operating with incredible intention, he could make a listener feel like everything was kind of a little bit off the rails and unexpected. Despite having a fire reverse of his own on the track, Raekwon remembers Dirties as one of the standout moments. 
They loved him on Protect Your Neck. He killed it. I always told people that. They asked me, yo, who had the best verses on Protect Your Neck? I said right away, yo, Inspector Deck and Old Dirty. They killed it. Them two, first things first, man. You're fucking with the worst. I'm sticking pens in your head. Like, yo, they was going crazy. The first time I saw that video, I thought the whole clan bodied it. But watching it again, you can tell ODB is just different. He's singing. He's talking about being dirty and stinking. Who says that on the mic? Everybody had already loved the song. So then, boom, everybody sees the video on video music box and everywhere, and they're like, holy shit. I see that guy every day on the ferry. I see that guy. He works at the Statue of Liberty. I see that guy. He'd be down here on the corner, you know what I'm saying? From that first video, ODB made an impression. He was someone you just couldn't turn away from. He wasn't going to be an artist. He was going to be a performer. Like, there's different stages to this shit. You got rappers, and then you got performers, and then you got artists. They all have a part to play in each other, but Dirty had everything in that one shot. As Wu-Tang came up, a lot of people wondered how they were going to break out as individual artists. They were untouchable as a unit, but it was kind of like betting on your favorite. People wanted to hear what Dirty would do next, what an ODB album would sound like, what other flows and stories are living inside that god's head. ODB loved the Wu and what they had built, but he also wanted to stand on his own as an artist. To do that, he would need to put together his own team, set the right kind of atmosphere for his own creativity, and try not to get in his own way. Up next on ODB, a son unique. The young god makes his solo debut. ODB, A Son Unique, is produced by Novel and Talkhouse for USG Audio. The series is hosted by me, Kali Kala. The series was written by Taylor Jones and Mohammed Ahmed. The producer was Taylor Jones, with additional production from Mohammed Ahmed. Production support from Lee Meyer. Our researcher is Zayana Yusuf. Our editor is Veronica Simmons. Our executive producers are Dante Ross and Budamonk. Georgia Moody and Max O'Brien for Novel, Josh Block for USG Audio, and Ian Wheeler for Talkhouse. Production support for USG Audio by Josh Lalonghi. Production management from Cherie Houston and Charlotte Wolf. Our fact checker is Dania Suleiman. Willard Foxton is creative director of development. Sound design and mixing by Nicholas Alexander and Daniel Kempson. Location and studio recordings by Michael Gino. Original music composed by Tom Young. Special thanks to Sean Glenn. This is a USG Audio podcast. For more information or to check out our other podcasts, go to usgaudio.com. For more from Novel, visit novel.audio. Novel.